Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment's greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Morning. It's good to see you guys. It is so good to start our week in worship. Thank you for taking your boats and high water vehicles into church this morning. It is good to see who will show up when they're a little bit soggy in their Sunday best. So thank you guys so much for joining us. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we are going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We are going to finish with what Kevin just read there for us. In Genesis chapter 4, we're going to cover a lot of ground in between as we continue this series on the attributes of God. We're going to see you this week and every week over the course of this season. Who is God and what is it that sets God apart? And as we make our way through this study, we have one goal in mind. And that goal is that the more we learn about who God is, we would grow in our trust for God so that we can follow God. Here's my fear. Maybe it's a, a conviction that we want to follow God. Like if I were to say to our church, hey, who wants to follow God? Raise your hands. All right, maybe I assume too much. No, no, no. We raise our hands, right? Like we want to follow God. But the question in the back of our mind is, do we really know God and can we really trust God? And we cannot trust and we will not follow a God that we do not know. And so one of the really humbling things is as we open our Bibles from start to finish, God makes himself known to us. That if we don't know God, it's not because God hasn't done his part. It's because we haven't done our part. And the question in the back of our mind is always, can I trust God? And think about it, like, 
God asks us to what we call exchange the common for the holy. He asks us all the time, over and over again, throughout scripture, to do what doesn't make sense to the world, to follow his way over the way that comes naturally, to choose to exchange the common for the holy. And so when God asks us to do these things that don't make sense to the world, or even are criticized by the world, things like starting our week in worship, Now, I know that seems simple, and it's like, well, yeah, we all start our week in worship, but do you realize how silly this looks to the world to show up late to football games, to to start our week in worship? So we asked, can we really trust God? Or to bring the best of our tithes and our offerings, our first fruits to God, that doesn't make sense to the world. And then right down the list, to, to save ourselves for marriage, to make disciples, to roll up our sleeves and serve instead of sitting on the sideline waiting to be served, whatever the application application is, as God invites us to exchange the common for the holy, the question in the back of our mind is, can I really trust God? I think what we're really asking is like, if I do what God says, can I really trust that God's going to take care of the results? And we cannot trust the God we do not know. And then the next question I find myself asking from time to time is, why does God ask these things in the first place? You ever find yourself asking that question? Like you believe in God and you want to follow the God, so you spend time with God in his word as you're flipping the pages and spending time with him. You see some things very clearly. God inviting us to exchange the common for the holy, and we start asking why. Like why would God ask for this? Why, why does God want something from us? And I think we grow skeptical, and it's rightly so, because it seems like everyone all the time only wants something from us in this world, doesn't it? And so maybe we project that on God. I don't know about you guys. I find myself afraid to answer my phone when it rings because I'm convinced it's going to be a sales call. Anyone else? Like when we first started the church, we had no money. We couldn't afford a phone. So I just, like an idiot, put my phone number on the web. So like if someone would call Eastside, I don't know, I've got a phone, you can call me. Well, I've tried to change it. I've tried to scrub it from the internet, but it without fail, five or six times a day, I get a sales call. And sometimes it's really obvious. Like sometimes it's like 1-800-we-want-to-sell-you-something. And I know to decline that call. But they've gotten creative, and I don't know how they do it. But like sometimes they will, I will get a number from a local number. It's like, oh man, maybe that's someone still trying to call the church. I cannot resist the urge. Hello, Eastside Christian Church. You know, your car warranty. We don't even have a car. We couldn't afford a phone line. We certainly couldn't afford a car church. I mean, a church car, right? And then sometimes like they've gotten so creative. I don't know how they do this. They make the phone number that they call me from look like my mom's phone number. So like I have to answer it. And you know, it's like, hello. It's like, oh, they're selling me again. And so I've grown skeptical. Like every phone call wants something from me. And I say that because I think sometimes when we read the commandments of God, we fall into this trap of wondering, like, does God just want something from us? Does God just want our time? Does he just want our money? Does he just want our purity? Does he just want our commitment? Does he just, does he want, want, want? And the truth we're going to see today is that God doesn't want anything from us because God doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't want anything from us because he doesn't need anything from us. Instead, God came to give us immeasurably more. Jesus would say it this way in John chapter 10. He would say, I have come. God has come from heaven to earth so that you may have life and have it abundantly. 
Now we'll talk about what that means because we don't want to misconstrue to some kind of health, wealth, and prosperity proposition. But Jesus came as God from heaven to earth so that we could have life. And if that is true, what we're going to see is that when even when God asks for something from us, it is ultimately for us. So open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Like I said, we're just going to kind of survey these first couple of chapters very quickly. We should memorize Genesis 1, 1 by now. I think we've talked about it every week for three weeks. But it simply says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so in the beginning and before the beginning, God was there. God created. God is self-existent. No one created God. God exists on his own. And because God exists on his own, God brought into existence everything that exists. Today, as we study the attributes of God, we're going to look at the attribute of God that God is self-existent that he exists on his own. And when I was studying it this week, I thought, man, I think we all already know that. Like we already know that God exists on his own. We take that for granted. But what we're gonna see is when we really wrap our minds around what that means about God, it has real implications for our everyday lives. That God exists on his own, he is self-existent. And then right there with that truth is the truth that God is self-existent. Sufficient. So if you're taking notes today, the attributes we're studying is the attribute that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. God didn't create us or anything else because he needed us. I think that's preached often because I'm going to be honest, they preach is kind of pretty. Like the preachers will stand up on the stage like this and they'll preach some kind of message that says something to the effect of, you know, God existed before all things, but he was incomplete without you. And so God existed you, which sounds really good. It sounds like a love story, but it's simply not true. Like the love story is that God created you. You made such a mess that he spent all of creation drawing you back to him. That's what's impressive. But the truth is God was doing just fine without us. Here's what I mean. Genesis chapter one, verse two says, the earth was without form and void. God was just getting started. Darkness was over the face of the deep. People were not in existence yet. And what does it say? The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so here we see the the Trinity of God beginning to unfold. Later, we would find out that Jesus was there in the beginning, creating, speaking. And so we have God in three persons, God, the Father, Jesus, Son, and the Holy Spirit there at creation. And it shows us that before we ever were, God was in a perfect relationship with God. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that. We don't have the brain space to wrap our mind around. And honestly, I don't know that it really matters. What we need to see here is that God is incomprehensible, but God exists in three persons. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're three distinct persons, yet they are one. The idea of the Trinity, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. But the point is that God has exists and he's always existed in perfect fellowship with God and a perfect love relationship with God. John would say, God is love. Everything that comes from God is love. God loves God and it, it, it's, it, it'll blow your mind. But what I want us to understand is that God didn't create us because he needed us. God created us because he wanted us. That God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. God wasn't lonely hovering around looking for someone to spend time with. God was perfectly complete in himself. The Apostle Paul 
in his ministry would show up in the city of Athens, the ancient city of Athens, and he would address the Areopagus, which was a gathering of philosophers trying to figure out faith and religion and God and the gods as they saw them. And, and Paul would walk around and he would see all of their religious relics. And in Acts chapter 17, he said this profound statement about who God is. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. And here's what I've underlined in my Bible, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God, Paul shows up and he sees all these religious relics and these temples and these things where they're trying to figure out the gods and appease the gods. And he says, the God, like who stands above all of these little G gods, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, the creator God, he doesn't live in creation because he exists above creation. He was there before creation and he's not served by you and he's not served by me as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. And it's this profound truth that God exists, he's always exists, and his existence is not dependent upon his creation. But the beautiful thing is, because God exists, he brings into existence everything that exists. It just like exudes from God. Like in his existence, like I can't even begin to explain it, but just he creates because he's a creator and he just begins to create these beautiful things. And in Genesis chapter one, we see the familiar creation story unfold that God created the first day, the heavens and the earth, the light and the dark. And he looked at it, he said, it is good. And the next day, God created the sky, and that's all he created was the sky. And he looked at it and said, it is good. And the, the next day, he created the seas and the land and the plant life. And he looked at it and he saw that it was good. The fourth day, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, the heavens, and he filled the heavens with stars, and he looked at it and said, it's good. The day, day five, he filled the water and the land with living creatures. He looked at it, and it said he was good, and God created everything, and he said it was good, and this, in fact, is something that sets God apart from his creation, because in the back of our mind, we think we are creative, don't we? Like we wake up early on a Saturday morning and we watch HGTV and we think like Chip and Joe, we are creative. And the truth is, I don't want to break your heart. I'm not trying to be mean. You're not that creative. Like I know that because every project that we quote unquote create looks just like what we saw on TV. We're just kind of cleaning up, replicating what we see a few years ago. Every house that was being built had barn doors and shiplap, right? And we think, how creative. It's like, you're not being creative. You're watching a TV show of people who are trying to kind of clean things up and recreate them. And the truth is they're not even creative. They looked at some pictures from some homesteaders from 150 years ago, and they just thought, well, that looks good. And they did that. And the truth is like we clean things up and we move pieces around and we pull color palettes that have uh, existed and we kind of rearrange them and we say it's creative, but it's not. God created everything out of nothing. Like, and I know the struggle because I go through this Every single week when I get ready to preach, I think, how am I going to preach this familiar text in a creative way? And I sit down, and I read the Bible, and I spend time with God, and I study the, the scriptures and the texts and things, and I think like, well, how am I going to present this in a way that they've never heard it? And by the end of the week, I've got a sermon that looks just like every sermon that's been preached for 2,000 years because the story never changes. We just keep pointing back to the creator. God is creative, and he created everything that exists. But the sixth day of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God created us. 
And it says this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. There we see the Trinity, right? God didn't say, let us make man in my image. He said, in our image. God, in the image of God, in the image of the Father, in the image of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created us as special in creation to reflect his glory. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God created man in his image. And it went well for a whole page in our Bible. Like, I don't know how long perfection lasted, but I know me and I know you. And so I'm going to guess it didn't last very long. God said, there's one thing you should not do. And isn't it true that as soon as you hear there's something you should not do, that's all you want to do? Like my brother and I are looking at a map for where we're going to spend some time hunting. And we look at all of the acres that are available to us, public land. And you know where we want to hunt? The private land, the fence line, where we're not allowed to hunt. We're like, man, that's probably where the deer are. Like, that's what Adam and Eve were wrestling with. God said, you can have all of this earth. There's just like one place you should not go, one thing you should not eat. So what do they do? Satan slithers on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, and Satan sells Eve the same lie that he's been selling ever since, that God is not good, that he cannot be trusted, and that our way is better than his way. And Satan shows up in this perfect environment, and he says to Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree. And Eve understood what God said. She said, yeah, God said that we can have anything and everything in this world, this entire garden is available to us. But he says, do not eat the tree. And then Satan says, well, if you eat the tree, you'll be like God. Maybe God said not to eat the tree because God is not good and God is holding out on you. And Eve starts to think, and you can almost kind of feel the, the tension starting to build. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe this good God who gave us everything that is good for our good isn't really good, and he's holding out on us. And so she starts to look at the tree, and the, and the, and the serpent, Satan says this. He says, and surely you don't trust God when he says you'll die. Like, that fruit looks pretty good. You're not going to die from eating that fruit, are you? And Eve says, okay, let's eat. She grabs the, grabs the fruit, eats it in an instant creation's relationship with our creator is severed by our ability, beyond our ability to repair. And instead of living a life of worship, we have stopped trying to serve God and have positioned ourselves to be like God. Here's the part of the story I want us to take note of. Genesis chapter four. If you've got your Bible, Genesis chapter four, we're gonna see what, uh, what unfolds next. So we have this picture of God in Genesis chapter 1 that he created the heavens and the earth, that before the earth existed, before anything existed, God existed. That because he exists, he brought into existence all that exists, that he is the creator, that God is self-existent. But from the fall, mankind has not stopped trying to position ourselves to be like God. The story goes on in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, so in Adam and Eve, at this point in the story, just for context, they're out of the garden. They're away from God's intimate presence. They're away from some of his protection as a consequence of their sin. And God yet is still gracious to them. He's still merciful because it says, after the fall, Adam knew Eve 
And when he says knew, it means like he knew Eve, if you know what I mean, and they had a son. And Eve said this. She said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Or so the English translation says. I don't know Hebrew, but the text I studied this week shows me over and over again that this is a notoriously difficult statement to translate. It's likely better translated, I have created a man equally with God. Now, the text doesn't say that because it's difficult to translate. And what translator wants to give Eve a hard time? She's already had a hard enough time. She's caused the fall of all mankind. And for the rest of human history, men and women alike will be kind of cursing her name. But what she actually says is something to the effect of, just like God, I've created a man. And so there's this part of Eve taking credit for what God created that Eve thinks that she has the ability to bring into existence that which exists. And I can almost kind of understand Eve's perspective. She's just learning this whole thing. She was there after creation, and she's holding the son, Cain, for the very first time, and she thinks, I did this. Like, I invited Adam on a date. He was just out on a, you know, working the farm. I invited him on a date. We walked through and ate some food, and I brought him home to the, I laid out the bearskin rug and the rose petals on top of it, and I invited Adam to, to do the thing, and I've carried this son for nine months, and I dealt with morning sickness, and I gave birth, and I created this little boy named Cain. She takes credit for creation. It's interesting to me. With the help of God, or, or rather, I have created equally with God a man. I wonder if as his creation, we don't face the same temptation to look at our life and like Eve think, I have brought this into existence. And I don't, I don't know, every part of life, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps it's a relationship. You know, I have brought this relationship into existence. I was the one that swiped right or swiped left or whatever direction you have to swipe to start a relationship these days. I'm the one that took him out on a day. Like, this relationship is because of me. Or maybe it's a career. Like, I have created this career. I'm the one that carved it out. And we think that we are the creator of it, that it is there to serve us, not just for our steward. Maybe it's a, a family. We look at our kids and we think that we have created them. We have created our family. Well, here's the thing. If we fall into the trap of thinking that things exist because of us, we will view them and their purpose to serve us instead of to steward them for the glory of God. Now, we're in Genesis chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. The words will be on the screen. But if you were to fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation chapter 4, we see the proper response. Eve looked at Cain, her son, and held him in her arms and thought, like God, I have brought the son into existence. But in Revelation, after all the dust has settled, the people of God worship God because of God's power to bring into existence that which exists. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10 says, The 24 elders, which is representative of all the people of God, they fall down before him who is seated on his throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. Amen. And you see in the final scenes of the Bible, the people of God worshiping God, it says they cast their crowns. What they like what, what it looks like they have built, all that they have before the throne, saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The book of Revelation shows us the proper response before an, 
self-existent, self-sufficient creator God is to recognize God's goodness in his creation and give him glory for what he created. But instead, our temptation like Eve is to take credit, which without even realizing it means we're positioning ourselves to be like God. We exist. We bring into existence. The story goes on in verse 2. It says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. It's almost like a footnote, like, oh yeah, we had another son. His name Abel literally means vapor. There's no question who the favorite son was in this family. The story goes on. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And so Adam and Eve have these two sons, Cain and Abel. And for context, the story tells us that Abel was a shepherd and Cain a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. I've circled that in my Bible, the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn. I've circled that in my Bible of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. There's so much in just these first few verses. We're going to go through it kind of quickly. One is kind of not the point of the sermon. The first thing I see, though, as we exegete this text is that the people of God, Cain and Abel, brought an offering to God. I don't know about you. When I read this in context, I think, how did they know to bring an offering to God? Nowhere do we have any record that God instructed his people to bring back to him an offering. And what it leads me to believe is that this is just what the people of God do. When they recognize that God is a gracious giver of all good things, we bring back to God the first fruits of what he has given to us. One of the things I hear often when I get to meet new guests from Eastside or the people that have been here for a few weeks trying to figure out if they're going to make this their church home is they'll say all the time, you don't talk about money at Eastside as often as other churches I've visited which kind of makes me wonder, like, how often are other churches talking about money? Because honestly, we talk about money every time we see it in the Bible, which is kind of often because we're faithful to do the things that God has said. But I also hear this, that you guys don't beg for money. And that's true. Like, that's true. We have never begged our church to give. I'm never going to beg our church to give. I'm not here to convince you to throw a few cents in the offering plate. I'll teach you who God is. I'll tell you what God wants. I'll tell you what he says. But I'm not going to beg for money because I think the people of God give when we recognize what God gives us. It's not that we don't need money. In fact, we need a lot more money than we have to accomplish the vision that God has given us to accomplish to plant churches and neighbors and communities across the city of Orlando. But I believe that when God is really our God and that we recognize that he has given us all that we have, we find a way to give. Jesus would say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if our treasure is not invested in the kingdom through the local church, then neither is our heart. And that sounds harsh, but take that up with God. That's what he says, not me. So we, we go to work on our heart. But it's not just what we give, it's how we give that matters to God. And how we give really reveals what we know about God. We're in a study to stand in awe of God so they would change the way we live today. I'm often looking for indicators in my life that reveal to me, what do I really think about God? Because I know what the Bible says about God. I know what God calls me to do, but the question I ask often is like, how do my behaviors reveal what I really believe about God? And it's true in all areas of life, right? Like if I say I want to be in shape 
and I eat like garbage and never work out, like I don't really want to be in shape. My behaviors reveal what I really believe. If I say I want to be uh, financially independent, but I continue to overextend myself financially, taking out loans and debts and racking up things that uh, interest payments, then like I can say I want to be financially independent, but I don't live like it. I can say God matters most, but if I'm constantly looking for you know trips to Disney or football games or things instead of worshiping with him on Sunday morning, uh, then it doesn't matter. I can say I want friends around me who will spur me on towards love and good works, encourage me to follow God more faithfully. But if I am not faithfully connected to a community of believers, then I don't really want that. And so it is with our offering. See, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Some of your translations might say Cain brought some offering. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. And not just the firstborn of the flock, he brought the fat portions which in those days and in our day is the best part of the meat. Have you ever had a steak without any fat on it? Like it sounds good because they say lean. It doesn't mean you're going to be lean. It means the steak doesn't taste good, right? Because the flavor comes from the fat. So if that's what you've believed, you have believed wrong. You need a lot of fat on the first portion, on the steak, if it's going to be any good. And so Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and he brings the fat portions and he brings them before God. Cain brings some salad. Now here's the thing. It's not that Cain brought salad. God is more good than I am. If you brought me, a, if you invited me over for lunch and all you served was salad, like not a chef's salad, like can we put some lunch meat on top of it or something? Like I would not be happy. Full disclosure, God does not care. If all you have is salad, you bring the best of the salad, God will be thankful and grateful for what you brought. But, but Cain didn't bring the best of the salad. He brought some salad. And so God looked at Cain and had no regard for his offering. And Cain was downcast and frustrated and angry and enraged with God. Like, isn't that funny? Like, when you sin against someone and they react and, like, you get mad at them, like, it's not a them problem, it's a you problem, but that's not our natural instinct. I was reading a commentator, Paul Kissling, and this is what he said of this text. He said, the principle of giving God the first and the best is based on the notion that ultimately, as creator, he already owns it all and is deserving of our very best when we acknowledge his ownership. And so this isn't a sermon on giving, and it's not a sermon on offering. This is an opportunity for us to look at the ancient text and see the story of Cain and see what was it beneath his offering, and what did it tell him about what he really believed about God. And as we dig into the text, we see in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, some of his fruit instead of the first. It shows us that Cain thought the creation ultimately existed to serve him instead of a resource entrusted to him by God, who is self-existent, to steward for the glory of God. And Cain's response shows a completely distorted view of creation's relationship with our creator. In the back of Cain's mind, he is inevitably thinks that he is self-existent, that he is entitled, and he ends up enraged. We don't have to look very far to see the fallout, the effects of believing that he was self-existent, that he was entitled. 
verse 6 tells us this. It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's God's just very kind reminder to Cain, like, man, you're bringing this on yourself. Why are you so frustrated? Why are you so angry? Just choose to do that which is good, and goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And Cain, instead of choosing what God wanted for him, didn't really trust God, didn't really believe that what God said was true, didn't really believe that God was already the owner of all that he had. And so verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay, now that seems like it escalated really quickly, doesn't it? It's like we're reading this story, Cain, the older brother, and Abel, the younger brother, and they both bring a sacrifice. And, and God says, you know, Abel's sacrifice, because it's the first fruit, because it's the best, it moves the needle with me. But Cain's sacrifice, not so much. And Cain gets angry, and he gets angry at God, but he also takes it out on his brother. And I read this text so many times, and I think, like, what did Abel actually do? And I realize that in Cain's view, that he was entitled to everything that God brought into existence. That in some way, he was responsible for creating. He ended up using his brother to prop him up. I think that's what we see, that when we feel entitled to this creation, we end up feeling entitled to people that God has created. And we will use people to our end. Now, Cain, as an older brother, would have often looked at his younger, you know, more puny, younger brother, and thought, man, I look pretty good compared to Abel. But as soon as Abel did not make him look good, Cain killed Abel. And I wonder if we don't do the same thing, that if we put ourselves in the place of our creator, we would use people to our own end. It's like if we use our kids to make us look good. I see parents at, you know, t-ball games yelling at their kids because they don't know which way to run. It's like, who cares? They're five, right? But people believe that those kids exist to serve them, to make them look good. It's like dating. If we, instead of dating to serve others, to make uh, them, help them love God more, we use them to prop ourselves up, to make ourselves feel good at their expense. And here's the thing. Even in the church, and I've spent time with friends and peers who have serve the local church, and the way they talk about the church makes me sad because they talk about the crowds coming to church as if they come to cheer them on. Instead of gathering together to remind themselves of God's goodness and grace on their behalf to, to, to uh, uh, spur them on towards love and good works. If we put ourselves in the place of the creator, we will look at creation as if we're entitled to it. And it exists to serve us instead of a resource entrusted to us to steward for the glory of God. I'm guessing it likely won't be the extreme for you where you want to kill somebody, but we follow the same path of Cain. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You're going to deal with a curse as the consequence of your sin. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Genesis chapter 4, verses 9 through 14. I see more of me in the story of Cain than I would like to admit. Because the truth is, if I'm not careful, I could know that God is self-existent, that I exist because he exists. But if I'm not careful, I will start to look at the things that brought, God has brought into existence as if they exist to serve me instead of resources that I can steward for the glory of God. And I can see how much of my sin is the fallout of that distorted view of thinking of the things that God has given us, which ultimately means it's a distorted view of God. I've used people and resources and things to prop myself up instead of leveraging them for the glory of God. And in doing so, even in my heart, I've taken the place of God. And like Cain, I find myself standing in awe of God, recognizing his holiness and his grace, but recognizing that compared to him, my punishment for my sin is greater than I can bear. That when I've taken the place of God in my own heart and in my own mind, I've cast myself against God and my punishment is too great. And I know the hopelessness of Cain. So here's the good news though. The creation didn't stop after seven days. Like if you grew up with this text, Genesis chapter one and two and three and four and five and six, the story of Noah and vacation Bible school, we think, man, God created all the world in seven days. And in fact, he did. But God is self-existent, he is a creator, and because God is a creator, he continues to create. Hear what John writes in his gospel. This is how John, who spent time with Jesus, starts his gospel. John chapter one, he says, in the beginning, and he takes us all the way back to Genesis, and he doesn't say God created the heavens and the earth. He says, in the beginning was the word, capital W. It's a way of describing Jesus. And the word was with God. And the word was God. There's the Trinity that God didn't create us because he needed us. God was in a perfect relationship with God. He was in the beginning with God. God has always existed. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. And then he says this, in him, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men and the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Leave that up on the screen for us, if you would, for a second, Savannah. Because this ultimately is the good news of a self-existent creator God. That no matter how dark the world gets, and no matter how dark our sin gets, and no matter how dark our despair gets, and no matter how dark our doubt gets, that God is always creating in us a new heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. God is constantly creating and recreating in the lives of those who love Jesus a new heart, washing away our sin and our despair and our selfishness. The parts of our heart and our mind that have positioned ourselves in the place of God that are robbing us of the relationships that God created for us to steward, robbing us of joy. And so as we stand in awe of God, and we recognize how far short of God we fall, we're inevitably drawn back to God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The spirit was hovering over the deep and God was there. 
And then John would fill in the gaps. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus, not anything was made that has been made. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And in this self-existent God is the hope of the gospel. That God is at work to draw his creation back to him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. That you would see fit through a few thousand years to preserve a text, to make yourself known to us, causes us to stand in all of you. And God, we continue to study who you are and what it is that sets you apart from your creation. But Father, as your creation, as you make yourself known to us, you're stirring something within us, a greater affection for you. You're bringing to the forefront of our mind a a need for you. God, you're revealing the parts of our hearts and our lives where without even realizing it, we have put ourselves in the place of our creator. And God, you have shown us that we are insufficient on our own, but we serve a self-existent, self-sufficient God who would see fit to send his son to draw his church close to you. Father, I pray that as we sing these final two songs, as we make much of you, you would make yourself known to us, that your Holy Spirit, who was there at creation, hovering the depths of the ocean would stir something within us, no matter where we find ourselves. And that, Father, as your spirit stirs us, you would draw us closer and closer to a God we are beginning to know, and a God we know is a God we can trust. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.